And uh, I'm sorry there's no uh, special Mother's Day sermon. Uh, we have a very interesting graphic. We're talking about the self-righteous wedding crasher, so uh, it'll be interesting. Uh, glad to have you here. Uh, super uh, grateful to the men who showed up uh, yesterday and did all kinds of work. So um, it was a, just a pile of men, and, and they did great job. So, uh, and also thankful for um, all the moms here and the moms that every single one of us has. Uh, and I, uh, I'm going to pray um, uh, after I uh, read God's word, and I'll include a word about mothers and just thanking God for them. Uh, there's a sermon I did uh, years ago called Paul and Rufus's Mother. Sounds like a really bad movie, but um, Rufus had a mom. It's out of Romans 16, and and Paul thanked uh, Rufus's mom for being a mother to him. And it was this uh, it, it's a list of names, and it reminded me of how many people um, actually enjoy the uh, mothering nature of people who are not their moms, if you will. Uh, and how important that is to the church uh, to have, um, you know, basically um, moms who, who love on the, on the younger women in particular and the younger men and just kind of, um, you know, care for them. And Paul was one of those who was a hard worker for the gospel and yet took the time to thank Rufus's mom, uh, which is pretty awesome. So uh, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 22, though, uh, and I'm going to read the uh, first 14 verses here and see what God has to say. So. Matthew chapter 22, uh, verse 1, and this is what God's Word says. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. And again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, and my Fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. And then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast, as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they'd found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. When the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment, and he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness, In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. This is God's Word. Let me pray. Father God, thank You so much for Your Word. Thank You for saving us. Thank You then for continuing to be present with us by Your Spirit and through Your Word instructing us so that Your will does not remain a mystery. I thank You for those who are here. Holy Spirit, I pray You move me out of the way. You'll speak the words you need to speak, those of conviction or those of comfort, whatever, Father, you see fit to build us up. And I thank you, Father, on this day, but I pray it's something we do for the other 364. We're praising you and thanking you for the moms that we have, for how they have cared for us, how they have protected for us, protected us, how they've provided for us, and how they've sacrificed for us. Lord, let us not forget 
to honor our parents and be reminded that you call us to honor our parents whether they are honorable or not. Not because they deserve it or earned it, because, Father, you have commanded it. So to your glory, I pray that we will honor our moms and our fathers, especially our moms today. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Well, no Mother's Day sermon, just one on judgment. How nice. The famous pastor Charles Spurgeon preached on portions of this particular parable seven different times at least in his career. And every time he expressed gratitude to a God who cared enough to lower himself to our finite minds and to teach us what are infinite mysteries through simple stories. The truth is, we all love good stories. We love to hear stories. We love to read stories, write stories. If you're parents, you probably have told many stories to your children. We often even talk about our own lives as having different chapters. We have stories of our own, and these chapters have shaped who we are, and we often think about the dark chapters in our story, and then the chapters that have not been written yet, the ones that we dream about. But by God's grace, one day, for those who are in Christ, you learn that you were part of a very big story, a much larger story. It was actually God's story of which you're just a character in and not the center of. And it's a story of redemption through His Son, Jesus Christ. It's a story that was written before the world was ever created. And so it makes sense, the hero of the story, Jesus, is one of the best storytellers. And that's what parables are. Jesus tells lots of stories. They're not for our entertainment, though I think many of them fill us with a lot of joy. They aren't to thrill us, though we see stories like this one in particular can fill us with fear. They're simple stories that reveal pretty deep truths about who God is and what He has done. And as I said last week, though they're simple, they're not always simply understood. That's why when Jesus was on earth, He privately explained the parables to His disciples because they could not often make sense of what He was saying or misunderstood it. Today, for those who are in Christ, you are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. In fact, Jesus left saying, if I don't leave, you're not going to get the Holy Spirit, which is important. And it's by His Spirit that we are able to understand these kinds of parables. More than that, The Holy Spirit is what I believe causes us to accept the truth that these parables contain. Even more than that, the Holy Spirit is the one who empowers us to live out what it is we understand. And so it's important that we, when I pray before we preach or when you study, that we do ask the Holy Spirit to guide us. Because He is the one who is teaching us. And today I think um, He's teaching us some pretty disturbing things about what Jesus said. And the thing about some of Jesus' stories is that we readily and easily accept the stories that are just like um, Christian living, whatever that is, Christian wisdom, like the soft, you know, love thy neighbor. Oh, that sounds good. But when we start reading stories like this that maybe you aren't apt to really spend time in devotional study in Matthew 22, 1-14, these are stories that are disturbing because they talk about salvation and seemingly talking about judgment, and we're troubled because they seem so definitive. Like, here it is. And 
That's intentional. The stories that Jesus teach are more instru- uh, less instructive and more indicative. In other words, they're not telling us what to do as much as they're telling us how things are. This is the way things are. And so we listen to that, and when you hear something disturbing about judgment, it's like, what can I do? Well, I don't know if you can do anything. And we can disagree about some of the details of what the little you know, people and the, the actions and the stories mean, but the hard truths are usually pretty clear. And what makes it even more difficult is these truths are not just like coming from the lips of some teacher. They're coming from Jesus, the incarnate Son of God. So not like Jesus says something, you know, you should forgive your enemies. You go, mm, no, I don't think so, right? It's like, that's Jesus. That's God in human flesh speaking. And so when he speaks parables, he's not speaking like with any level of ignorance or with any level of like misunderstanding. He's speaking, this is the way things are. And there really is no arguing. And without question, there's always a response. There's no one who ever hears Jesus teach and ever just kind of goes, eh. You usually have two responses, and you're going to feel that response one or the other, I think, today. According to God's grace, we'll respond with softened hearts of worship, filled with joy, even at some of the disturbing things. Or, I believe according to God's wrath, we will respond with hardened hearts of rebellion with hostility. You either respond like a disciple or a Pharisee, basically. I want to kill Jesus or I want to follow Jesus. But it's not just joy or hostility to some like kind of truth out there. It's joy or hostility towards a person. Towards Jesus. Jesus is exposing in these two chapters how His own people rejected Him. And He's doing it through these parables. And it's interesting that this is the third of three parables. Every one of the parables centers on the relationship between a father and a son. And so it's important to understand that as we talk about rejecting God's kingdom, or those who talk about being a Christian, or I'm not a Christian, or or however you describe it, when we're talking about God's kingdom, God's kingdom has little to do with religion and rules. And much more to do with the relationship with the one true God. And one's respect for and reverence for and worship of God is revealed through their disposition towards Jesus. Okay, So what someone thinks about God has everything to do with what they think about Jesus. And that is why the most important question that anyone can answer who ever lives is, who is Jesus? Because that will reveal everything about God and that's going to be Jesus' point or your disposition towards God. So in this third parable, Jesus is comparing the kingdom of God with a king, a father, who is giving a feast for his son. And this is not just any everyday feast. It's not just a party for friends. It is a wedding feast celebrating the marriage of his son. And it's not just any wedding. It is the wedding for a prince. It's a royal wedding. And so he begins his teaching by saying the kingdom of heaven may be compared to. Now, the parable here is told to reveal what the kingdom of God is like. 
It makes sense then to understand, obviously, that the King or the Father is God the Father and the Son being Jesus, and that's how He's going to move forward. And we take that analogy, we go, okay, so if that's true, if the Kingdom of God can be compared to a father who throws a wedding feast for his son, this is how he's explaining and defining the Kingdom, we see then that the Father's, God's greatest goal in His kingdom, is to bring honor to His Son. That God the Father is devoted to making much of Jesus. That's the goal of the Father. Now, although the Son in the story and outside of it, in the story is worthy to be honored for being a prince, right? He's not honored just for who He is, though He is worthy to be honored for His royalty. The Father is specifically honoring Him as the Son who is a bridegroom entering into a marriage with His bride. What does that mean? It means that the Kingdom of Heaven, what's the Kingdom of Heaven about? The Kingdom of Heaven is about, the rule of God is about, God is devoted to making much of His Son in this marriage. The characteristic of the Kingdom of God, the primary, the first, the most important, the greatest expression of His rule, the height of His glory, the core of our identity is found in Jesus and His Bride, the church. Those two things. When we talk about being in the Kingdom of God, when we talk about living as a citizen of the King, what we're talking about is that our identity is found primarily and first and foremost as a son of the king, being bride, right? Jesus and the bride, being uh, uh, faith in Christ and part of the church. Those are the things that give us identity. Those are the things that Jesus says is mo- or God says is most important. And knowing that the cross is what makes the marriage between the son and his bride, the church, possible. God the Father is absolutely devoted to perpetually making much of and celebrating the amazing love of His Son. So we go, why do you talk about Jesus all the time? Why are we always talking about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection? Because God said that is what His kingdom is all about. The marriage, the love that the Son shows to the church. There's a movement in Christianity and in non-Christian circles, it talks about, I love Jesus, but I don't love the church. Like Jesus is great, but the church has its problems. Yeah, no kidding. One's not sinful and one is. So we know that. But you can't separate those two. God says you can't separate those two. God says if you're going to be a citizen of the kingdom, you are about what God is about. If you're about what God is about, it's Jesus Christ married to His bride, the church, and celebrating that. Celebrating Jesus, celebrating the church, celebrating the cross, that's what we're supposed to be about. Now, the story unfolds though and kind of shows who God the Father is and how He responds to those who rejected Him. In the story, the king makes a general call to those who he says have already been invited to celebrate this feast. Now, Historically, this is culturally, this is protocol. You send uh, a reminder, usually the day before the feast, 
And this is kind of like a second invitation. So a first invitation has already been sent out. And there's already a guest list. If you've ever you know, had a wedding or planned a wedding, you understand there's a guest list. You're not just inviting anybody. You're making a list of those people, dare I say, you love most, right? Like these people are going to be invited. And well, we only got 100 chairs, so we don't love these people. And they can't come. But there's a very particular list, okay? A save-the-date announcement is sent out before the servant's sent out. So they already know they're on the list. They already know that this wedding day is coming. Save the date. The wedding day is coming. Now, the save-the-date announcement came many times in many ways through the prophets in the Old Testament. The last one was Malachi. And in Malachi, which is the last book of the Old Testament, was like the greatest save-the-date announcement. And they said, one day, a great an awesome day of the Lord is coming. Ready? Save the date. Put it on the fridge. Great and awesome day of the Lord. That's coming, right? It's the idea that, that the Savior is going to come. The King's going to come. And He's going to save His people and redeem them and, and be with them and dwell. So they've been waiting for this day. These are the Jewish people, God's people, whom He told. Now in this parable, as we saw in the last parable of the vineyard, people are unwilling to come. They don't listen to the servants. They got to save the date. The servant comes and says, hey, remember the date? And they say, don't want to come. Now, it's important to understand that the king's invitation, both the save the date announcement and the actual invitation, these aren't just common invitations. This is a royal invitation for the kingdom. A royal invitation is a royal command. So when you get an invitation to a wedding that you like, mm, I don't even know them, and I don't want to buy that gift, whatever. You throw it in the, right? That doesn't happen with this. It's a royal command. You cannot refuse this invitation without consequence. They reject it. Regardless, the preparations continue. And the king's patience and slowness to anger would have actually been quite surprising, if not stunning, to those who were listening to Jesus' story. Like, you don't do that. That's just, that's culturally wrong, that's ethically wrong, that's morally wrong. The king had the right, even the responsibility, to utterly and swiftly pour out his wrath on those who disobeyed his command. But he doesn't. And this again speaks to, if we're saying the kingdom of heaven is like this, or the kingdom of heaven, we have a God who is patient. We have a God who is long-suffering. We have a God who is merciful. And we see, again, this Father, this King, by grace, not obligation, but in love. He could appear soft in doing this. He sends a second, and actually a third, if you count the Save the Date announcement, to the same people. And it says in verse 4, again, He sent the servants, other servants this time, Tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, my calves, my fat calves, not the skinny ones, the big meaty ribeye ones, right? Big ones. They've been slaughtered. Everything is ready. We have this come to the wedding feast. Notice no threats in there. No, you better come. I'm going to spank you good. Like nothing. Just like come to the feast. If you remember before Jesus began His ministry, a man named John the Baptist, 
walked out of the woods and started preaching to the Jews. And his message was simple. Repent. The kingdom is at hand. And it may as well have just said, the wedding feast is ready. John the Baptist shows up. The wedding feast is ready. The king is coming. His son is here. And it's amazing that it's not like a potluck, right? He's not like, hey, come to the feast. If you're letters A through J, you need to bring a salad. If you're K through whatever, you got to bring drinks. But none of that. He's like, I prepared it all. Come. Just feast. And in this day, this would have been a seven-day feast. It would have been like dynamite. Like serious food. Come, eat all the food you want. I got chocolate fountains. I got some pretty ice sculpture. We got ribeyes. We got like seven other kinds of meat. We got macaroni salad, potato salad, whatever salad you think is awesome, we got that too. We got the little candies on the table that you can just eat and not eat dinner. Whatever, we got everything. He didn't say bring anything. You just show up and eat. This is a command to delight. This is a command. There's no threat in here anywhere. This is a command to delight. It's a command to receive. John 15, I don't know if you knew Jesus said this. Verse 10, He said, If you keep My commandments, we don't like that word by the way, commandment. Our flesh hates it. Because we automatically think it's a bad thing. If you keep My commandments, you will abide in My love just as I kept My Father's commandments and abide in His love. That's awesome. Okay. Verse 11, These things I've spoken to you. Like what? Well, all the commandments and the fact that I said just obey my commandments. Why? That my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. We have this vision of God the Father and maybe Jesus as His representative as being like this cosmic killjoy that doesn't want us to have any joy. When in truth, Jesus says, my commandments are for your joy. So the response of, the, of those who are invited is really important here because I think it shows a lot of things. One in particular, it shows that the inherent problem with any church or movement is the belief that people primarily refuse Jesus because of methods. And if you get the methods right, get the form right, then people will, you know, if I get the words right, then they'll be saved. And they will, they will enjoy everything God has for them. The problem is not in the form, in the story at least, of the invitation. It's not in its form. It's not in the timing of the invitation. It's not even in the person bringing the invitation. The problem is in the heart of the invitee. And we share that problem because there's very few of us that view the commands of the Lord. I shouldn't say that. Make that the list of commands you don't like. They're different for all of us. For some of us, like, it's easy for me to serve, the, you know, blah, 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 feed the poor. But it's difficult for me to confess my sins. It's easy for me to um, love my kids. It's hard for me to forgive my enemies. Like, whatever. Whatever list that you think is difficult. The reason it's difficult is that we don't view those commands as commands to feast. We view it as commands to starve. Like, if I follow these commands, it's going to hurt. 
Imagine if all those commands, especially those ones that are difficult for you, if you viewed them by God's grace as an invitation to feast. And if you really believed that, they don't. And a lot of us want to believe that, a lot of churches, I would say, and individuals as well, believe that, well, if we just said it right, they would believe. And it's not the case, because we have a heart problem. And the truth is that we are really quick to excuse ourselves for not responding to the king's commands. And the truth is, the moment we decide that, you know what, um, it's reasonable, excusable to disobey a very clear command of the Lord, is the moment that we have simply said, I guess I am now king, and my kingdom is way more important than any kingdom God might have. If you look at the response of the people, some people rejected God by killing his servants. And I don't think many here have done that. I don't, maybe some of you have killed Christians. I don't think so. But the reality of us responding to God actively in, ho- in a hostile type of way, um, it, it's not as common. The interesting thing is that some people rejected God by killing His servants, but most of them rejected Him in much more passive ways. These are people who claim to be kingdom citizens. Some rejected God through just paying no attention to Him. La, 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 la. I can't hear you, God. What? I didn't even know you invited me. Sorry. Others concerned themselves with their family farms. Others went back to their businesses. And it's amazing how quick we are to excuse our lack of obedience in the name of a family. Or work. Or any number of things that we have made more important than God. More important to the extent that we're willing to sin to obtain whatever it is we think we're supposed to have. In truth, what we believe when we ignore God's commands and go work on our family farms or go work on our businesses, whatever, ignore God's commands and do that, is because we believe that disobedience is the path to joy. We actually believe, just as our first parents did in the Garden of Eden, that I'll be happier if I disobey. I'll be wiser if I disobey. I'll be more secure if I disobey. I know God says to you know, forgive my enemies. I know God says to bless the poor and, and make sacrifices for those who are in need when given the opportunity. I know He says that. They're very clear commands. But that's not where life is. That's not where happiness is. That's going to be too costly. I mean, I like God, but obeying Him is way too inconvenient and way too hard and way too costly. That's what it's being struggled with here. And here's the sobering thing. Is that indifference, which we'll call what most people do, and hostility are equal in the eyes of the king in terms of rejection. They are both denials of an invitation to feast, whether passively or actively. They're all engaging in rebellion against the king who is, of course, God in this story. They're not victims when the divine punishment comes. They're not innocent people who have been, you know, hurt, wronged in some terrible way. They are unwilling. They are sinful. They are opposed to a king who has only loved them, only provided for them, only protected them, the king to whom they owe their allegiance. 
And while a holy God is really not an, obligated to invite anyone, I mean, I hope we realize that. Like when Adam and Eve messed up, he could have went, done with that. He's not invited to. We always like, why isn't everyone saved? Maybe the question should be better: Why does God save anyone? We don't think that way because there's little bits of us that we all think we're kind of deserving. We're not that bad. The truth is, he's not obligated to invite anyone. He is very much obligated to respond to rebellion, to exercise his authority, and to protect his name. And speaking of name. I think one of the passages that we should all maybe spend time dwelling and meditating on is Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. That's the passage where Moses says, tell me your name. He goes, I'll tell you my name. And God walks before him in his glory and he declares who he is. He's like, the Lord, the Lord. And here's the words he uses to describe. Who is merciful and gracious and slow to anger, and abounding in love, and forgiving. That sounds like the king. Slow to anger. What? They rejected you. I'll be patient. I'm going to send them another invitation. But the end of that verse in Exodus 34 is this. He is slow to anger. He is abounding in love. He is forgiving. But who will by no means clear the guilty. The king responds to indifference and hostility the same way, and he says, verse 7, the king was angry and he sent his troops and he destroyed the murderers and burned their city. There is a limit to God's love in dealing with those who reject him. It should cause us to fear a little bit knowing that there's a limit to God's patience and love and even lavish provision, and refusing to attend the wedding to receive His gracious invitation is really refusing to obey His command. And it's more than just a simple choice to do something else. It's an offensive act of disrespect and a declaration that the Son is not worthy and the wedding is not worthwhile. Now the actual slaughter of the people that Jesus refers to here did happen to the Jews, probably about 35-ish years later. Um, it's not random. It didn't surprise God. It wasn't arbitrary or capricious. It was an act of a very compassionate but just God against those who had every opportunity to repent and rebelled against Him. And 35 years later, the entire city of Jerusalem, most of it was burned temple was destroyed, and nearly a million Jews were slaughtered. So Jesus is prophesying in, many, in a very tangible way, but it's also a word for us. Amazingly, as you get down into the story, the refusal of those who originally were invited Israel does not mean the wedding doesn't happen. Just because the guests don't show up, the wedding continues. And the king will honor his son. And the father's plans will come to pass. There will be a wedding. There will be a feast. The groom will be honored. And there will be a bride. And the feast will not be a less than experience. On the contrary, the refusal of those who rejected the king will in turn begin to honor him all the more. And God will look the father, the king, that much more gracious 
The wedding will be even more amazing and more joy-filled and more famous and more appreciated by those who are, by earthly standards, more undeserving. It says, go therefore to the main roads, right? Where people are pretty much walking away from the city. Go to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. They went out to the roads and they gathered all whom they found, both good and bad. The people of Israel, though certainly were some Jews who received him, including Matthew himself, the people rejected him. And that rejection resulted in an invitation to all peoples from all nations. In the parable, the king sends his servants to the main roads and says they invite both the good and bad. And the hall is filled with a bunch of good and bad people. And good and bad is really a human standard kind of explanation. And the truth is, there will be people in the hall deemed worthy by God that men in their flesh deemed unworthy, and vice versa. In other words, we're not very good at seeing the worth of anything. Those whom we think, wow, man, that guy's like super spiritual, are not. And those whom we think aren't super spiritual because they're not going through the routines, very much are. God sees well beyond appearances and we have difficulty seeing it. But as we see this wedding hall filled, we see a picture of salvation and a picture of what God does to gather His people and He invites all kinds of sinners. Now, to help you understand who He's inviting, add this word sinner to the end of good and bad. There's some really good sinners. Like, you've gotten good at it. And there's some bad sinners that are really bad sinners, right? But they're all sinners. There's no other kind of person to choose from. God is collecting sinners. And He invites all these sinners to attend a feast in the honor of the the Son of the King. And all of them at that feast end up removing their earthly robes. Some have awesome robes and some have rags. And they put on the wedding garment. They're covered by this wedding garment that's furnished by the king because many of them don't have clean clothes and others, well, their clothes weren't as clean as they thought. So they put on this wedding garment and everyone's brokenness is covered. And everyone sits equally at the king's table. And everyone looks beautiful. And everyone is filled in every sense of the word not because they were found deserving, but simply because they were found by the King. That's huge. But the end of this parable is probably the scariest part. Remembering that Jesus is describing how things are as this wedding hall is filled with people. The gathering of God's people. The king walks in and he surveys all the guests. He's just kind of walking through. I don't know if he walks like that, but it's kind of fun to think he did, right? Walking through. And his eyes are drawn to one guy. Out of all these people, one guy he sees and it says he has no wedding garment on, he's not naked. He would stand out pretty obviously. He is clothed. 
And it's noteworthy that the wedding guests were not required to have wedding garments to be invited. But to get into and to stay in the party, they were required to put on clean garments. This man did not accept the clean wedding clothes, the wedding robes that were offered to everyone who attended the feast. You go, why? It's something that I think many of us may be guilty of. He believed that his own dirty garment was good enough. Now, it might have been clean by world standards. But really what this individual represents is the self-righteous sinner, the self-righteous wedding crasher, who believes that there is such thing as a good person. That there's such thing as a good Christian. That there's actually anyone worthy to enter the kingdom because of something good that they have done or bad that they haven't done. The truth is, there is no one good, not even one. And sometimes we have a tendency to think, well, I'm not that bad, because you're looking at someone who you do think is really that bad, and it makes you feel like you're good. But in truth, you're just a little less bad, but really equally bad in a different way. Perhaps even the same way, because now you're prideful, right? Actually, you're probably worse. The kingdom of heaven... is full of sinners who are saved by grace. The king doesn't reject this man for the presence of something bad. Okay, It's not like he walks in and goes, there's a little dirt around your ear. You want to clean that one? Right? He doesn't reject him for the presence of something bad, but the absence of something good. They need new garments. And while it may be tempting to believe that we can tell what is good and what is bad, Guess what? The only person in the story that can see who actually is good and who is bad is God. The king is the only one who walks in and says, what about that dude? Yeah, he looks nice, doesn't he? No, he doesn't. He's not clothed with the garments that I have given. So the king goes up to him. says, friend. So he's not threatening him. Friend, now... How did you get in here? How did you get in here without wedding clothes? Not without clothes, really. Weirdo, not naked, right? How did you get in here without wedding clothes? That's the question all will answer at the judgment seat of God. We may not actually have a test, but if you go with me, I believe we are simply asked, what right do you have to come into my kingdom? What right do you have to sit at my wedding table? And there are many answers that people will give. And they're all variations of, I'm a good person. I've earned my way into here. Most of the men and women who live on this planet will stand before the throne of the king like this man. And what does he say? Nothing. He's speechless. Because guess what? He knows. We all know that we 
falls short. Even in our best moments of love, we are still not loving as we ought. This man is speechless. He's silenced by his guilt, and he'll be held accountable. There are many answers that we can give on that day, but there's only one that is acceptable. Jesus said, quite simply, in the Gospel of John, chapter 14, I am the way, and the truth, and the life. And the last part of that verse is, no one comes to the Father except through me. What right do I, Sam Ford, have to sit at the wedding table? None. I have no right. I am woefully undeserving. I am more undeserving than I'll ever admit and than I'll ever know. If given the opportunity to list out my sinfulness, I would never be able to complete the list like God could complete the list. I certainly have a list of people I'm better than. Well, I'm not that bad. I'm certainly not that bad, which means I'm good. No, it just means you're bad and now worse because you're prideful, right? Like, I'm bad. I don't deserve. And that is why all of us must enter the kingdom of God through Christ. All of us must put on Christ. I don't need to work for a reformation of behavior or find a better suit of clothes to appear more godly. What I need is God to change that screwed up part of me inside. I need a transformation of the heart and an entirely new life. And that's what happens when you put your faith in Christ. My sin is buried with Jesus and I'm raised to a new life through His resurrection. And I'm given a garment of righteousness right? Uh, it's not like my, my sin goes away spiritually, but it's still really there. It's more like, it's like gone. Can't see it. All you see is Jesus. What do you mean all you see is Jesus? I mean when the Father looks down on you, He has the affection for you as if you were His Son. That's, that's, that changes everything. Because what you really believe is that God's looking down and seeing your past seeing your crappy present. But if you put your faith in Christ, it's like, oh, Jesus sued, Jesus sued, I'm Jesus sued. You're not trying to hide. He already knows you're dirty inside. He's embracing you as a son. And when you begin to see that, when we begin to see that how He actually sees you, there is a change, a transformation. And you're no longer indifferent or hostile towards the commands of God. On the contrary, what happens is commandments begin to feel from the inside out. They begin to feel like invitations to feast. And when God commands you, you go, heck yes, I want to do that! Because there's joy there. I want to feast on that. Even something as hard as forgive your enemies. Forgive those. Oh, come on. No, you go, believe there's joy there. I'm going to press into that. That's what the power of the resurrection does. Although I didn't tell her this, I'm going to use my sister-in-law as an example. Six months before my sister-in-law was saved, we sat on opposite couches in my house, and I told her 
she didn't love Jesus. She didn't like to hear that. She was actually very angry. And I was trying to be nice. I don't know if she would say I was actually nice. But I said, no, you don't love Jesus. She says, yeah, I do. I said, no, you don't. Yes, I do. I said, you don't love Jesus. I think you might admire Jesus. I think you might respect Jesus. I think you might appreciate Jesus. Like he's a great teacher or maybe just a tragic hero who did some really humbling serving things. But you don't love Jesus. You don't obey Jesus. You don't view Jesus as your Lord and your Savior. You don't ask Jesus, what now, Lord? My time, my life, my breath is Yours. What would You have me do? I follow You. I love You. I will sacrifice all for You. You don't love Him like that. She's like, no, I don't love Him like that. She left. Got a couple voicemails. (laughs) She had talked to my wife, her sister, first. I think we may have had a conversation, but her comments were like this. This is why people don't believe. This is why no one wants to obey. This is, why, this is why people don't become Christians because you say things like that. That doesn't feel good. I may have apologized. I don't recall. Six months later, she's sitting on my couch. I watch her walk in. And she's been clearly crying. Found out later like all day. Because Jesus changed it all. And I sat down, and she proceeded. One of the first things out of her mouth was, I'm so sorry. Now, I didn't want or need her to tell me I'm sorry. I was like, you were right. You've tried all these years to tell me. And it wasn't because I said something perfect that day or very imperfect. It was because God decided to change her in a moment. And she left what was a dark world. And that world no longer defined her. And God raised her out of that. And now she ministers to that same world that God pulled her out of. With delight. With joy. As if doing things, if I told you like the stuff that she goes into and people she ministers to, you'd be like, ugh, she views it as a feast. Because God has said, go. That's the kind of change. I'm not talking about, you don't manufacture that change. Someone manufactured that change in you. And his name is Jesus. So if you put your faith or trying to find your meaning or your joy or even hoping for anything else but Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, you will never delight in the commands of Jesus. They will always feel yucky, like you were eating the vegetables that you never wanted to eat your mom told you. You truly won't love the Lord. But know that if you never love the Lord, Jesus says you'll be forever separated from what is an amazing, eternity-long love fest in the presence of God. He says that He'll send those who rejected him into the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's hell and it's hellish. What I believe that is, when you're separated from the love of God, it's a different kind of feast. You're allowed 
or given over to that which you believe was going to give you happiness and joy apart from God. And you feast on that forever completely unsatisfied. Imagine that. Now, I don't say that to scare you. And here's why. I don't believe anyone can be scared into heaven. Any more than you can, you know, basically force somebody to fall in love. It doesn't happen. It can't happen. The scariest part, and maybe that's a comforting part for me, is that I can plead with everyone, and I do. I, I do desire everyone here to repent and believe everything I've said, that Jesus Christ is the one who has made it possible for you to be with God again, where you're meant to be. That there's no amount of good you're going to be able to do to get there. And there's no amount of bad that says you can't if you put your faith in Christ. I want that. But I know that my pleadings, even if I describe the promised lavish feast like, oh, here's why you should be a Christian. There's going to be this amazing feast and ribeye steak and chocolate fountains and it's going to be awesome and will be no crying and no tears. Like, I could... I could totally explain that to you, or I could just scare the dickens out of you what hell is going to be like. Most won't listen. That's what Jesus says. Most won't listen. He ends with the most sobering words of, for many are called, but few are chosen. Be careful when you read those words, because Jesus says, right, they're Jesus' words, And the verse doesn't read, many are called, but only a few choose. Because then that would be about us. It says that many are invited to the party, but few are chosen to get in. You're not chosen because because you respond to the invitation. You respond to the invitation and you receive the grace that the Father provides because you're chosen. In love, I believe God's gospel goes out to the world as we close here. And please know that it, His call to you is not an invitation for you to invite Jesus into your heart. I know that's culturally something we say. Many of you probably have done that. It's not wrong or sinful. But the call that goes out, come to the feast, It's not for you to go, you know what, I think I'm going to invite Jesus into my heart. In truth, it's Him inviting you to repent of your effort to try and save yourself and make yourself clean. And believe that Jesus lived a sinless life in order to prepare for you a perfect garment of righteousness. And that Jesus on the cross was crucified so that He could take away that dirty, nasty, smelly garment that you love and you've been wearing all the time and you think it's gray and everybody's like, dude, that reeks, that nasty, ungodly garment. He takes that away. He buries it way far away where even the dog can't dig it up, right? And then He raises from the dead To say, I'll overcome every obstacle, even death, in order to show you the power of my love. Jesus is calling. And He is not calling you to get clean. And He is not calling you to get good. And He is not calling you to get busy. He is calling you to feast 
on His love. He is calling you to be washed by Jesus. He is calling you to be clothed by Jesus. He is calling you to be loved and led by Jesus. And by grace, you will live in Him and you will live by Him and you will live for, for Him for His glory and guess what? Extra bonus, your joy. Where the commands of God become, woo, we get to eat again. We get to feast again. There is joy there. I want you to know that. I want you to believe that. And now we'll sing about it. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You for Your grace. If I'm honest, Lord, there are few moments where I actually believe I'm that bad. I confess that I think that I'm pretty good. I ain't that dirty. At least not as dirty as others. The truth is, Lord, You are the One who has done everything to make us clean. You are the One who has done everything to make it possible for us to be in Your presence where true joy is. I pray that You will help us, Father, to live with the garment of Jesus Christ. That we will see ourselves as You see us, loved and cherished. And that seeing ourselves that way through Your eyes will empower us to live for You in ways that are incredible as we begin to feast on Your love, we'll be able to work for Your glory and for our joy. Thank You for that privilege. Help us to believe that. It is in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.